Hey, before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might be into. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mystery that is Russia with the help of those who know her best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former KGB spy. Join Global News Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple on a journey to find out how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying This Is Why. We are recognizing Pride Month with a two-part roundtable discussion on politics, the media, social media, corporate involvement in Pride, and more. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. I'd like to introduce you to three people. Sarah, who is a radio show producer, Quinn, who's an activist, and Morgan, who is politically involved and a human rights activist. I hung out in the studio with them for about 40 minutes just to hear their thoughts on where the LGBTQ2 community is in 2019. This is part one of our conversation. So growing over the years and... I think becoming more evident in 2019 is corporate involvement in Pride Month. Does that corporate involvement make you feel celebrated or exploited? It, it, initially, my reaction is exploited. Um, you know, I know there are companies that take big strides to include their LGBTQ plus um, employees, You've got some of the big ones in VC. Um, but, you know, you start seeing rainbows on everything. And I don't think that necessarily means that they understand the struggle. It's just, you know, we want you to buy our products. We want you to feel safe purchasing our products. But there's nothing really being done aside from changing the color of the logo from, you know, green to rainbow. And, and that, that's not enough for me. There's a bit of insincerity to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I'm... Of two minds. I I love celebration and, like, grandiose. Like, more rainbows, the better. I'm pro, like, (laughs) color. But I think that... I think that, for me, um, companies that are doing it consciously, and I've just, over the past few years, seen where you can actually, like, find out, like, okay, so, like, Target makes rainbow apparel during Pride Month. Where does that money go? And so there are companies that are paying a percentage or all the profit towards, like, queer charities, supporting queer youth, and I think that that is really important and okay, and I think I'm on board with that. Gosh, I feel like the thing I resent most about corporate pride is just how long it makes the friggin' parade. <laughs> it's like five hours when every yeah. bank's in there. Like, every bank. <laughs> I just let, yeah. I, but I mean, I think that... I think that it is a tricky, it's a tricky question. Well, with that said, I mean, speaking of the parade, I think that's a really good example of corporate involvement in Pride celebrations. Do you think that the corporate involvement has watered down or made Pride culture more 
palpable to the masses, especially when we look at the Pride Parade and how it's evolved over the years. I, I would like to propose that there's value in it being watered down in some ways. Um, you know, the corporate yeah. aspect of Pride does kind of show, like, you know, society is represented in our brands and in our governments and in our political parties and in our organizations and seeing them at Pride is a positive thing. But it also gives a great opportunity to, uh, to highlight, hey, you know, there's TD Bank. I've heard numerous complaints of TD Bank shutting down the accounts of transgender women on their fraud system that takes trans women to be liars. That's not good, for example, you know, not to throw one brand under the bus, but I know of that brand having issues. Yet there they are trying very hard. Uh, but when we're at a parade and you see, oh, look, there's company X, there's Bob's Tires making an effort, right? Mm, yeah, that absolutely. has value. Yeah. And I think that's meaningful. Also, <clears throat> as an activist who has leveraged pride to cause social change, even though it was vanilla gay men's pride, <laughs> I would still say that uh, we got a lot of mileage for trans rights out of you know, reminding people that if they didn't sign up for a pledge upholding trans rights, they wouldn't get to be part of the really good marketing opportunity to show how great an ally they are. Even if the allyship was only simply to sign a form that said, we are allies and we have put in some measures and these are the measures. Um, I, I was on the um, March planning committee, I think it's called, for Pride Society, and we were vetting these organizations, and oh, we had rich conversation mm. about whether a certain business or another business should be allowed in based on what they had done or based on what they had not done. So I think that this boring family pride aspect has some real positive things when it comes to policy change. The family aspect is also, it is important. Like as a parent, I think that it's really nice the way that there is like mass visibility when there's rainbows decked out in like all the banks and all the grocery stores. It does allow me to have a conversation with my three-year-old about what's going on in a way that is really nice in a way where he can feel like this is an accepted, embraced way to be, which is important because, I mean, he's going to be from a gay family for his whole life. So while we could say that some company involvement can be because they're trying to monopolize on potential profits through pride involvement, on the positive side, it makes it easier to have conversations. It uh, expands community reach and also, I think, gives the chance to hold companies accountable if they're going to be involved in Pride. It gives us a chance then to hold them accountable to what they're actually doing for the communities. Yeah, there was this amazing moment at San Francisco Pride where Wells Fargo was in the parade because, of course, huge bank. And then directly adjacent to them, like no no other people in between, it was protesters about like no foreclosure. Like it was just after like all the housing stuff was happening in the States where all these people were ending up homeless. And so it was like protests, like this protester group basically protesting Wells Fargo, directly marching behind Wells Fargo, which Pride makes for strange bedfellows. I thought that was wonderful. It was the, the bad stuff and the critique of the bad stuff, like all visually there at once. We'll continue our discussion after this really quick break. You're listening to This Is Why, a national radio show and podcast from Global News. 
So moving away from corporations, what do we think about musicians getting involved in Pride? Is there more perhaps sincerity in what they're doing? Is there more power or impact in what they're doing? Or can it come across as insincere as a corporation? I'm thinking specifically of the new (laughs) Taylor Swift song that came out. What are we thinking about the Taylor Swift song? I guess is the bottom line of what I'm trying to ask. What are we thinking about the Taylor Swift song? Oh my God. (laughs) I I haven't actually heard the song yet. I know I'm going to get chastised by the gay community because I've seen screenshots of it. I know what the the gist of it was going on. Um, You know, I think that celebrities have uh, an interesting opportunity to use that celebrity in a positive way. And, and I saw, you know, a breakdown of it saying, you know, we want more allies. We want people to support us. We want to bring in uh, our issues into the mainstream. And as soon as somebody does that, they're immediately criticized for the way they're doing it. I, I think that, you know, despite it being Taylor Swift, that this roll call of celebrities in the video is going to be a positive Effect and, and media has that ability to penetrate these communities that we can't necessarily get to. You know, I, I can't go to a community that is homophobic. I'm not going to get there. But Taylor Swift's music is just going to permeate. And some, you know, queer kid in their bedroom is going to be watching that video thinking, there are people like me. I, I can go on. I can find other people like me. And and I think that's really important when you have that ability to spread that message. I think it's also important to remember that mass music media also shows where society is going, right? They mm. try to be edgy, okay, and so I'm edgy and I do this edgy song and here's my edginess. But actually, that's an incredibly mainstream production. It's a corporate animal. It's like a Mm. bank putting out an inclusive bond. (laughs) You know, and so the fact fact that Taylor Swift or anyone else puts out a song that celebrates diversity or queerness or transness or whatever it is, isn't just that queer kids are going to see that in their bedroom by themselves in isolations. It also means that every single Mm -hmm. child in North America or in the English-speaking world will have the lyrics imprinted in their brain. My uh, almost 13-year-old daughter can uh, recite lyrics for (laughs) any pop song. And even though she probably thinks that Taylor Swift is too old, Whereas I think, of course, that she's oh, young. Taylor Swift is 16, isn't she? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, she probably was gonna, is going to know the lyrics. And I think yeah. that uh, we see the ugly, right? Like I, I see the ugly, the ugliest of the ugly, like as part of my daily life uh, when, when people do their transphobic garbage around me. And uh, nonetheless, none of these people are 13-year-old girls singing pop songs in their head, right? Yeah. You know, and that's what we're going to get out of it. The positive aspect of of grabbing uh, culture is that that cultural idea gets heard and absorbed. And those kids in five years will be young adults and in 10 years will be working in the out there. Right. And as I'm always telling the bigots, I say, you know, maybe you should remember that one day your children are going to turn on you <laughs> because <laughs> they've participated in our culture. So they're one of us, actually. Right. And if you have a role model like Taylor Swift saying, yeah, that's my community. Those are my friends that you're talking about. 
it can change a child's perspective, even if not the older generation, their parents. And that she did right. Okay, so I'm not I'm not going on the record as a Taylor Swift fan. I am not a Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> but I will say the people who she brought to that video is she, I don't know if it was her awareness or someone who works with her because you never know with these like mass like pop song culture projects. But that video is full of all sorts of queer representation from the queer community that is diverse in terms of labels. It's diverse in terms of like race. It's diverse in terms of representation. So that part was done well and consciously. Um, I don't know if it was done consciously by T Swift, but it was done consciously by someone and is done very well in the video. This year, 2019 is an interesting year because it is exactly 50 years since Bill C. 150, which was the decriminalization of same-sex activity between men over the age of 21. I know that there might be some controversy over how much uh, change that bill actually instilled in that moment. However, if we consider this to be 50 years since it was brought in, where are we today? How far have we progressed in 50 years? I feel like we're regressing at the moment with the current political climate. Unfortunately, I think the the queer community is is fractured in this is that you get some people who think okay well we you know we now have decriminalization of homosexual activity we have gay marriage so the fight is over and i think that comes down along gender lines or along uh, class lines and you know we still have people to fight for we need to include intersectionality in our fight so including other marginalized communities, fighting for trans rights, fighting for the rights of minorities. And that's where it becomes difficult to say, where have we gone? Because when we leave people behind, I don't think we're doing any better than the people who were oppressing homosexuality before. I think it's really important that we still look around within our communities and say there are people that have been left behind that have not obtained the rights that they should have. I would say that I think there's a number of factors. I could write a thesis here, but uh, in you know to not do that. So first, I I would like to like bring up that just a few days ago, Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court in the United States, he's a Supreme Court judge, put out a uh, supporting opinion on a on a decision, and in the supporting opinion, he said that you know for for immoral judgments that have been ruled on by the Supreme Court, jurisprudence shouldn't apply anymore. This has been said by a sitting Supreme Court judge. This is really worrisome because, you know, um, human rights that aren't fought for to protect, they, they can be rolled back. People find tricks. But that said, the number one influence that I see in how we turn out, you know, we pick a random LGBT person, actually, or a random person from any marginalized equity-seeking group, and the number one decider of how that person works out is their class still today. Are their parents rich enough to insulate them from the mm. trouble? Can they go to school that's mm. gotten the training to, to be good? Can we, do they have the might to, uh, to, to bring like a rain of misery upon anybody who misbehaves? Or are they vulnerable already? Um, the other one, of course, is background. If that child happens to be born into backgrounds that hates people like that child, that yeah. child's going to struggle. And as a society, we do a terrible job of managing that. And we've gotten actually nowhere, I would say, right? You know, 50 years ago, those children were at a high risk of being murdered or killed from the neglect. Today, those children are at a high risk of being murdered or killed from neglect. Um, 
intersectionality, I think I agree, is a very big aspect of it, and that's how we measure that. You know, I love the term hierarchy, the idea that sometimes you're the king of the hill in a context, and sometimes you're not, right? So, you know, the, the poor white guy who happens to be at a uh, parent advisory council, for example, is going to, like, not have as strong a voice as he has when he's, for example, at his, uh, at his strata meeting or mm -hmm. in the back rooms of a political system. And, uh, and this is, uh, you know, so sometimes we have relative power. Right. But nonetheless, ultimately, class, you know, those, we've done a lot of great things, enormous progress. But if you're a 13-year-old kid in a social conservative background of lower middle class or vulnerable parents, chances are you're going to have a terrible outcome because you're queer. And we need, we need to resolve this. This is a problem that we have not addressed enough. That's interesting to say that the economic divide between classes affects people perhaps more than they realize. You know, we just think of rich and poor, but then when you start breaking it into other categories and you start looking at vulnerable people that exist within a lower class, that really adds more weight to how important it is to talk about class diversity. And that extends to geographical regions too. Like in the way there's a lot of safety in urban centers um, and queer people flock to urban centers, but places where there are less safety and communities that are smaller, rural communities, tend to lose their queer people or those people often do live with threats of violence and fear. And so I think it's very easy for me to say in my life that I feel safe and that we've come a long way, but I know that that can change, like that can change in a road trip, like that you can drive like three and a half hours out of Vancouver and you're no, long, yeah. you're no longer safe. Absolutely. It's just gone. And so when you think about that in terms of nationally and internationally, like there's a lot, there's a lot of work. Yeah, I think, you know, if you said if you travel, if uh, I'd be afraid to be queer in Alberta and Ontario right now because, you know, you see uh, the pride parades in Ontario are being visited by right wing white supremacists and, you know, fanatics. And I feel like the political climate there is allowing for these voices to, to sift up and, and to actually gain a voice there. And that's troublesome for me, especially with the upcoming federal election. You know, if we get a conservative government, I feel like this could be a trend everywhere in Canada that, that these people are going to feel supported by the wave of conservatism and start speaking this, you know, hatred and regressive thinking aloud. Sarah, you said something that I thought was so interesting. You said, uh, my sense of safety can change in a road trip urban centers feeling safer, rural areas still being really at risk, which is interesting when, to Quinn's point, you look at how diverse the political landscape is within the same country that we're in. If you were to road trip across Canada, you would hit urban areas and rural areas that are socially and politically very different. And there was concern expressed with the upcoming federal election. Will that political landscape shift further right? Will the conservatives win? What will that mean for LGBTQ2 people? 
I, uh, I would like to take exception with your statements in certain ways. The last incidents of anti-transgender police brutality that was reported to me happened in my neighborhood against a trans guy. Just because we're in an urban center, it's not, like, it's not necessarily a, a safe house. Secondly, I think uh, I put quite a bit of effort into separating um, the social conservative extreme right from the Conservative Party of Canada. And, mm. uh, you know... You know, as, as we all know, I'm a uh, card-carrying NDP uh, <laughs> supporter, and I'm currently vice president of the BCNDP, and I've run for office for the BCNDP, and I plan on running for office again, probably for the NDP. Nonetheless, you know, I think we all do better from having social conservatism separated away from fiscal conservatism, and I worked mm-hmm. on that ag- aggressively. And, you know, we have much worse social conservative fears than the conservative party, Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada yeah. <laughs> actively troll trans people. They actively incite uh, hatred and uh, discrimination on prohibited grounds against trans people. They actively pick on transgender people for political gain. This is awful. There was a um, there was a rally at the Vancouver Art Gallery a few days ago that was effectively a People's Party of Canada rally, which had actual Nazis there, not yeah. pretend Nazis, actual Nazis who make Nazi cakes with swastikas on them, actual Nazis who actually defend, you know, yeah, they've, uh, they've Hitler been on social media, and so forth. You know, yeah, you know, actually. This actually was Saturday, there. right? Is that and something I was you expect there. to see in Canada in 2019? Uh, it is not. I did no. not expect to see half a dozen well-dressed, educated white supremacists and white nationalists who campaigned for Maxime Bernier next to Laurelyn Tyler Thompson, Laurelyn Thompson who ran against Jagmeet Singh. Mm-hmm. I didn't see, expect to see her here, especially since she's campaigning in Alberta right now in the hinterlands of Alberta. And I didn't expect to see a dozen or so soldiers of Odin providing security for an anti-transgender event, supposedly anti-Soji, uh, so sexual orientation, gender identity. And I really didn't expect this to be tolerated and to not get the coverage it deserves, which is, oh my God, we've got xenophobic white supremacists allying with transphobia, using trans kids as an excuse to kick down on a vulnerable vulnerable minority. Don't you think the social climate is helping encourage that? I mean, that my, my point wasn't necessarily directed at a, a specific political party, but I think that the social climate and you know, what we see going on in the States, what we see going on in Alberta, what we could see going on in our country is is allowing these people to freely speak these views, which I, I frankly think are illegal. You know, we, these people should not be allowed to be expressing these opinions in the street. And yet we saw a rally where no arrests were made. People were freely making Nazi symbols with their hands and getting away with it. And I, and I think that is what I'm afraid of. And I think, too, some of my best friends are fiscal conservatives. I am all on board with uh, fiscal conservatism. I do think what I would love to see from our conservative politicians in this country that would make me feel safer is condemning some of this behavior, because that's the piece I feel like I'm missing. And so I just really what I need 
from American politicians too, is just saying hate is not okay, like on the record that hate is not okay. This Is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeyer, with special help this week from Sarah Hyde. Thanks, Sarah. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. Give us a rating and a review. We're on Twitter, so contact us at This Is Why, or send us an email, thisiswhy at curiouscast.ca. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.